This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The latest report confirms what anyone who has had to visit an emergency department knows. More and more patients have to suffer through hallway medicine. That, of course, refers to the amount of time a patient has to wait when they have to be admitted from the emergency department. Not surprisingly, older Canadians are the hardest hit. People aged 65 and older found themselves waiting an average of five hours longer than last year, longer last year, excuse me, compared to the year before. Most of those visits, the average, it took more than 36 hours compared to 31.4 in 2015-2016. Now, according to the province's chief doctor in charge of emergency medicine, that's a huge problem because elderly people do not fare well in emergency hallways. Spending time there exposes them to all manner of adverse effects. There is a little bit of good news in this report from the Canadian Institute of Health Information. That is for people in Ontario. If you just needed to be treated in emergency, the average wait time went up only 10 minutes from last year. Still, it was seven and a half hours, but that is less than the national average. So I want to hear from you about your experiences in the emergency ward, waiting perhaps with a loved one. How long did it take you to get in? Um, What happened? Uh, Did you see more people in the hallway? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-740. 4740. Right now, let's go to emergency room doctor Brett Belchetz and Dr. Sean Watley, who is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lou. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, Brett, uh, you're on the ground in the emergency rooms. Uh, do these numbers surprise you? Uh, these do not surprise me at all. I mean, this is something that all of us that work in the ER, we, we live and breathe this day in and day out. And I can tell you, on an ongoing basis, when I work in the ER, our emergency room is at or over capacity almost every single day. And not only that, one of the things that's very apparent to all of us is that a huge percentage of our capacity is not being used to treat new patients. It's being used for patients that have already been seen, already been assessed, and already been admitted to hospital, but there is no room in the hospital for them to go to. So they sit sometimes four days in the emergency room, and there are times where I have walked into a shift where literally over 50% of our beds are admitted patients, which means there's nowhere to see anybody new, which means that everybody new that walks in gets stuck in either the waiting room or being seen in a hallway. And It's not a comfortable situation. It doesn't make for good medical practice. It doesn't make for good outcomes for anybody. It's certainly not a surprise in any way, shape, or form. Um, Dr. Watley, what's what's your reaction to these numbers? 
Well, I think Brett summed it up really well. This has been a crisis for a long time. As you know, Libby, I wrote a book about this last year called No More Lethal Weights. Most of my time has been spent in the emergency department. We know that for every hour that people wait in the emergency room to get admitted to hospital, there increase likely there is an increased likelihood of death, and this comes from a large study in the BMJ 2011 looking at over 21 emergency department visits in Ontario. This is serious business. I just got an email from a colleague over working at the Belleville General Hospital, Quinty Healthcare. The chief of staff sent out a note, and I quote, there's a severe surge as of November 30th. We're at a near gridlock um, situation, and he said it was, in, quote, imperative for all docs to get in and see if there's anyone they could possibly discharge from the hospital. We haven't even hit the flu season. I think this should be concerning to all your listeners. Well, I'm sure that it is. Now, um, I'm quoting Dr. Harold Evans, who is the province's uh, point guy on emergency medicine, and he's talking about uh, the impact on elderly people, on older people, and it's, and I quote, they, uh, this is what happens when they're stuck in eMERGE. They are subject to delirium and deconditioning, increased con- complications and rates of inability to return home when their needs are not met in hospital, and they're vulnerable to hospital-acquired infections. Um, Brett, can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen in this regard? Well, you know, I've seen lots of uh, examples of care that just is not meeting the needs of these patients. So they're in an environment where they don't have the appropriate nursing staff. So you can imagine somebody who is a surgical patient or an internal medicine patient who's sitting in an emergency room and being cared for by an emergency room nurse who is distracted because they have other new emergency patients coming in. So they're not getting the types of specialized care and specialized expertise that they would get up on the appropriate floor. Um, I certainly see that they're confused because they're not in a comfortable setting. Emergency rooms are crowded. There isn't any privacy. Often, you know, there isn't even the staff to help them go to the bathroom when they need to go to the bathroom. They may not be getting the treatments in as timely a manner as they need to be getting them. I see them getting confused. Certainly, uh, there is way more exposure to infectious illnesses because they're in much more close quarters to other patients in that setting. Not only infectious illnesses, but also injury. Because we don't have the appropriate supports to take care of these people, I've seen patients falling out of bed, falling en route to the bathroom, injuring themselves in any number of manner manners. And this is because the emergency room is just not equipped or staffed to care for these types of patients on an ongoing basis. So, so much morbidity here, so many bad outcomes. Um, all of this uh, is is a crisis, and certainly a crisis that you know every time we speak about it, it's getting worse. So you know this is not the first time we've discussed this. I feel like we've had this phone call and this discussion a number of times, and you know unfortunately every time we have this discussion, the numbers are getting worse. And I, and I feel like the uh, limited initiatives that we've had to address this problem have not really made much of a dent to date. Um, Sean, uh, how much of this is the result of what they call alternative level of care, that that upstairs in the hospital there are a lot of people who are stuck there because they don't have anywhere to go to from the hospital? Well, that's a huge issue, Libby, absolutely. I think in my local hospital we've had our gymnasium and the auditorium full of ALC patients for so long that our hospital actually decided to renovate the auditorium into bed care spaces. So as you know, in 1990, we had 33,000 beds in Ontario, 33,000 hospital beds. This year, 2017, we have 18,500, and the government has just 
um, approved 2,000 more temporary beds. So we have fewer beds now than we had in 1990, and the population has grown by 36%. On top of that, long-term care capacity hasn't, hasn't kept up. So it's no surprise that hospitals feel the crunch. Well, yeah, but every report that I've seen seems to suggest that that the solution for this problem isn't in creating more hospital beds. It's it's in other types of care. Um, what do you think of, of that, Brett? Oh, well, well, I, you know, I would say absolutely. Uh, the, the biggest issue here, um, you know, we obviously, I, I do think we need more hospital beds. I mean, we haven't kept up with the growth of our population. But all of these ALC beds, you know, these are patients that are no longer receiving active care. That's the definition of ALC. And the problem here is that we haven't appropriately invested resources into actually creating facilities where these patients can go to. So, you know, it doesn't take a, a mathematician or a financial way to understand that, you know, where you're going to put your dollars. You know, if we have, say, 20% of our beds, I can't remember the latest stat in terms of what percentage of beds were taken up by ALC, but I think it's somewhere around there being taken up by patients where we're not treating them, does it make sense uh, if we're trying to open up, you know, lots of extra capacity, does it make sense to create beds that cost $1,000 a night to run versus beds that cost a couple of hundred dollars a night to run? And so when we look at some of the facilities such as respite care and long-term care facilities, they're orders of magnitude less expensive than acute care hospital beds. So, you know, the first thing that we should be doing in an environment of limited budgets is creating the least expensive form of care to, to really fix that ALC problem. But, you know, to Sean's point, we've hugely under-invested in our acute care facilities. We're way beneath where we need to be, especially given our population growth. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think we have to do both. Okay, doctors, hang hang on a sec. Uh, let's uh, start to get some callers in. We'll start with Bob in Mississauga. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Fine. Uh, tell us about your experience. Well, I went to the family doctor, and I saw him at 7.30 at night, and he thought I was having diastolic heart failure. Wow. So anyway, he sent me to the emergency. This is the third time I've been in an emergency, but not for that. My breathing capacity was 50%, apparently. So I got to, to the one at Highway 10, and uh, it was 8 o'clock, and it was packed. And people were come grumbling and complaining. They've been there for three hours, and the nurse came out, the head nurse, and said, look, people, we have 320 people a night coming through here. So you can either wait or leave. So they saw me, I think, around 11.30, and they did some tests. And then I sat until about 1.30 until a doctor took me into another room and did some more tests. And then after that, they set me in another room and monitored me. And, oh, I'd say 5 o'clock, I was released from the hospital with well, the diagnosis that I had asthma. Oh, a diagnosis of asthma. Um, and I got home. I got home about 5.30, got some sleep, and went to the... Trillium Hospital to see a specialist for breathing, and uh, I'd already had my pulmonary test and everything else done there beforehand, and she said, your capacity is 50%, and you've got asthma. After that, was after three hours sleep, but I mean, they were efficient. They were trying to do what they could do. It was flu season. I mean, I have no problems with that. I figured I was going to wait a long time anyway. I mean... Well, you and you got you, you got the correct diagnosis, which I guess um, is uh, the important thing. And and what these numbers show is that for people who just need to be treated in the emergency, um, you know, won't say things are great, but but they haven't deteriorated uh, over the last few years. Um, Bob, thanks so much for your call. Okay, no, three hundred twenty people. I mean, in one in one day. I mean, the emergency staff doesn't have the staff to do it. Yeah, well, that's a whole other issue. Thanks, Bob, for your okay, call. Bye. Um, I, I saw uh, doctors, I saw there are some statistics, and it sort of says um, 
Admitted patients who registered in the emergency part department between 9 and 10 p.m. spent the longest time waiting. And there was also a comparison uh, that people who registered on a Saturday versus a Thursday had to wait like seven hours longer. Um, you know, if these numbers are available, uh, Brett, why don't they just staff accordingly? Well, I, you know, I, I think that that's a, a great question to ask. And I think it, it speaks to the 24-hour nature of medical care. You know, people are getting sick around the clock. And, you know, we try our very best to keep the hospital staffed overnight and on weekends. But, you know, with a finite number of physicians, a finite number of nurses, uh, it's, it's impossible to keep it as well staffed overnight or on a Saturday as what you're going to see during the week. I mean, people have to take breaks at some point in time. And so, you know, whereas... You know, we might have a full roster of specialists working to help us out during the day. At night, we might only have one or two. And so the the processing rate of being able to have uh, people who are admitted, assessed by those specialists, admitted by those specialists, and get the next step of treatment started is just lower overnight. And, you know, the problem is every specialist that you put on overnight is a specialist that's now no longer available to provide care the next day. Because, Correct. Because, you know, you can't have that person working the next day after overnight. So, you know, we have a finite number of bodies. Um you know, the one, one comment that, you know, you've, we've, that's been brought up a couple of times is this idea that, you know, for, for people who don't get admitted, you know, few, let's, you know, let's, let's breathe a sigh of relief because the numbers aren't getting worse. You know, we're, we're stuck at that sort of seven or eight hour number. And, you know, that's 10 minutes worse than before. So let's say that's a good news story. And, you know, I think it's really important for us to compare where we're at versus, you know, best practice countries in the world, because this is not a good news story. I mean, we should be getting better. If you look at Countries like, for instance, the Netherlands, which is one of the best performers in the world in emergency care, you know, more than 50% of emergency room visits in the Netherlands are seen by a doctor in under 30 minutes. Um, you know, that's what we should be aspiring for. I think a good news story is for us to say people are getting seen in under half an hour. So when we say seven or eight hours for non-admissions, it, you know, total time in emerge is good. It's not good. Compared to international comparators, we are failing in a big way, even for those patients. Uh, good, good, good point. Uh, Sean, do you have a comment on that? Well, I, I'd, I'd like to say that we act surprised when we hear that, um, oh, there's a longer wait time on a Saturday evening or, you know, don't go to the Emerge on a Sunday for sure. You're going to wait forever. You know, make sure you go on a Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, <laughs> well, you can't known, make sure, right? Yeah, this has been known forever. I, I mean, we know that there's a bimodal. So, so there's, there's a surge just after lunchtime in the early afternoon in emergency departments, wait times go up, and then another surge after supper. This is well known across North America. We know that there's a, uh, the capacity of the hospital is you know, at, at its bursting point by the end of the weekend because the specialists often aren't able to make the discharges on the weekend because they're not able to do the same amount of investigations and treatments because the weekend hours at the hospital kind of everything slows down a bit. It works more Monday to Friday for all the regular work that's going on. So we act like, it, like this is a surprise, but it's not. People who work in hospitals know that this is happening, so why don't we empower the administrators and the leaders in the hospital to change the way the hospitals run? Why do we insist on having surgeries Monday to Friday? Why don't we juggle that a little bit? Why don't we have more specialists working on the weekend so that they can do rounds and discharges instead of letting everybody wait until Monday? You know, either you go home on a Friday or everything happens again on a Monday. We know this data. Let's do something about it. There are solutions. It doesn't oh, have to be this bad. Uh, I just want uh, I know that uh, Brett, Dr. Belshaz, has to leave in about a minute because he is on call. Uh, Sean Watley will be staying with us to the end of the segment. Uh, Brett, what would you like to leave us with on this? 
Well, I, I think that the final point uh, that I would like to make is, you know, there's no magic here. There's no mystery about what makes emergency room wait times poor. Um, number one is we need to make sure that only the right cases are coming into emergency. We want to make sure that things are that are primary care, family practice type things stay in primary care. And number two, we want to make sure that once cases are in the emergency, the right cases, when they're admitted, that they have somewhere to go. So we do a horrible job on making sure that the right cases come to emergency. So if you look at the stats in Canada, 47% of people that are coming to the emergency room admit that they don't have an emergency, but they're going to the ER because they have nowhere else to go. They have no family doctor or clinic they can access. So uh, number one, we need to fix primary care because that's going to take a huge amount of pressure off the emergency room. You can imagine if we cut down the, that volume of initial visits to the ER by 50%, that would open up a boatload of capacity. And number two, we need to open up more beds, both in an acute care setting and in the long-term care setting to fix the ALC problem and to have the resources we need on the inpatient acute care beds. Um, none of this is a mystery. None of this is magic. We know exactly what we need to do. It's just a question of having the willpower and the good decisions to make these decisions and make it happen. Okay. Dr. Brett Belchitz, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day there. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Sean Watley, hang on. And uh, let's go to Ken in Sarnia. Uh, Let's get rid of the dial tone. Okay. Ken in Sarnia, hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? I want to tell you about my experience this summer in Sarnia Hospital. Go on. Uh, I had a stomach infection, and uh, I ended up getting admitted to uh, Victoria Hospital in London, which is a fair-sized hospital. And uh, I got down there about 5 o'clock in the evening, and it was like 9 o'clock before I even got admitted. And uh, I was there for about 10 days. And one day I was talking to the nurse who was looking after me, and I said, why does it take so long to get admitted to this hospital? Just a minute, it only said, took you four hours? It took four hours just to get admitted. To the hospital, to stay, right. to stay overnight? Pardon? To stay overnight? They... No, I, I, was there, I was there for about two weeks. Okay. I, I had this stomach infection. Right. And um, she says, well, on any given day, there's between two and 300 people in this hospital that could go home but have no place to go. Well, exactly. We've been talking about that. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening to it. And I don't know if you any, know anything about the hospital um, in Sarnia. Um, there was a hospital, this general hospital, which they closed and uh, amalgamated at St. Joseph's Hospital. Well, they left the Sarnia General Hospital standing, and it was being vandalized, and uh, it's actually just a wreck now. And here, if, uh, if people knew this was happening... Why couldn't they have changed the hospital in Sarnia into a halfway house and get some of these people home? Because that was the first time I ever heard that statement, that in London Hospital there's between two and 300 a day that could go home but have no place to go. I had never heard that before. Well, yeah, there are a lot of people like that all over the province. And as a matter of fact, uh, they are doing that with uh, uh, here in Toronto. They're doing that in a few places, taking hospitals that have kind of been decommissioned to try to yeah. well, get well, some temporary this, action. Yeah. Well, here we have this hospital inside. You have beds and everything. They let it sit there for five or six years. People were breaking into it, vandalizing it, stealing all the copper t- pipe and everything. And here... They, they easily could have converted that into a halfway house. Okay, and I Ken. want to tell you about my, my emergency experience in Sarnia. Uh, I had an MRI done on my neck, and I got a call on a Thursday night about 7 o'clock to report to the Sarnia Hospital emergency immediately. 
So I had to get a ride. I wasn't able to drive. I get up to the hospital. Well, they had no idea who called me. And um, it was 8 o'clock at night when I got admitted. And I said, well, I might as well stay here. Maybe you'll find the person that called me. And um, long story short, it was 2 o'clock the next afternoon before I got out of there. Okay. Thanks for sharing that with us, Ken. Let's go to Cameron in Hamilton. Cameron, are you there? Hi there. Yes, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, so I just wanted to touch base with a little bit of my experiences. Um, first off, as a kid, um, understanding the wait times um, when my parents would go to uh, a, a few uh, different cases of uh, emergency. Um, and as a kid, I, I understood that the wait times were very, very long, uh, anywhere between like four to eight hours most of the time. Um Yep. And um, now, now that I'm older, um, and uh, I, I've been to the hospital a few times since, um, just one drastic difference that I wanted to say is that the wait times in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, have drastically uh, been reduced. I've noticed um, a big difference here, um, especially with uh, uh, fellow friends and whatnot too. Um, they have also said, like, they're, they're still long, don't get me wrong, but um, they're anywhere now just between, uh, I'd say, one to three hours before you're at least uh, seen, and then roughly about an hour or two before you get out of there on most cases, depending on what it is. Yeah, I, um, I mean, and the good news is that if, if there's something really serious and life-threatening, I think you are seen pretty quickly. They know how to recognize yeah. that. Well, it's yeah. always it's always good to hear about something that's getting better. Cameron, appreciate your call. Of course. Uh, I also just wanted to touch base on um, uh, the previous uh, gentleman's uh, comment about um, how a lot of people are going to the emergency without an emergency condition, and that taking up um, a lot of uh, the space and, and taking uh, pressure on the people who need the actual um, assistance. Um, I, I'm wondering, too, what we can do as a city and um, as a community um, to help support a way for people to get uh, family doctors and, and whatnot. Because, honestly, I'm, I'm in the same situation myself. I haven't had a family doctor uh, for the last uh, five years or so. Um, and it, it's Well, you know what? Um that's a very good thing to bring up, and um, we're running out of time. So I'm going to let Dr. Sean Watley, who is a family doctor and who is the head of the Medical Association, answer that. How do we get okay. more people family doctors? Thanks, Cameron. So thanks, uh, thanks, Libby. Great question raised by Cameron. We absolutely need to support primary care in Ontario. And as you know, we've been struggling for the last three and a half to four years without a contract with government, and this is sort of the basis of what we need before we can start addressing these uh, family doctor access issues. I wanted to clear up one misconception, though, and, and it's, a, it's a really strong myth out there that low acuity patients, so people with minor problems, block up the emergency department. That is a myth. So low acuity patients only spend a very short time in the eMERGE. They don't take a lot of resources. They take very little time from the nurses and the doctors. And it's actually these folks, like Dr. Belchus was referring to, that are lining in the hallways, and they really need to get into a bed up inside the hospital that are filling our emergency departments up. So it's the sick people that are filling the eMERGEs, and there's lots of research out there showing that the low acuity patients don't cause this problem and we shouldn't be making people feel bad 
because they had to go to the eMERGE because there was no other place to go. It's actually those, you know, the runny noses and the, and the little bruises on, 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 uh, on a body part, those kind of problems don't block up our emergency department. It's the, it's the sick people, and often it's the elderly people that really need an acute care bed. Okay. On that note, uh, Dr. Sean Watley, thank you so much for joining us on this really important topic. Thanks for having me on again, Libby. Thanks. Okay, and uh, people, I'm I'm sorry we're out of time on this. Um, I am still really interested in hearing your stories. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, so please call back, and we can continue this uh, critical conversation, I think. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have more on your health uh, with our trusted contributor, John Papasturgio, from the Ontario a pharmacist association and we will be right back you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.